Hi, everybody. It is Bree Hall, and welcome back to the Count to 10 podcast, where we talk about issues that marginalized people experience, as well as those moments when you really just need to stop and count to 10 in order to collect yourself and get back to living your best life. So today we have such, such a special guest on, and it's Charlotte Twin a spiritual and transformational coach, activist, and speaker who is continuously asking how to live a life of service that can lovingly overturn the status quo. After the death of her first love in 2007, she began a journey to learn how to be free from suffering. Meditation, creative expression, and activism each played a role where she found that she thrives the best. At the intersections of love, justice, and healing, in 2017, she created Get Free, a coaching practice and community where she helps people of color heal from oppression and live truly liberated lives. Since then, she has worked with thousands of people in the field of personal development, helping them cultivate lives full of trust, confidence, intimacy, connection, mindfulness, and compassion with themselves and all of their relations. She is humbled, grateful, and expanded by it all. So welcome, Charlotte. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to have you on today. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. When you asked me to do this interview together, I was like, yes, I have a lot to say on this topic, but I'm also just like, I just want to hang out with you. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. Like I I literally got lost in Charlotte's Instagram, y'all. It is Aww. just amazing. So I know we gave a brief introduction, but I always love to give the guests the floor to introduce themselves even further or anything that you may want to add just about who you are and what you do and, and what you love. Yeah. So as Brie mentioned, I am a spiritual and transformational coach and my job and my craft and my joy and my purpose and my heart is to really traverse the places of life's spectrum that people don't want to go into, that they're scared to go into, that are challenging to go through, and to just walk with them hand in hand and help them move through it to the other side. Doing that inner work, right, that's needed to get free so that they can really make that divine contribution that they came here to be and just create that more beautiful and more just world that they know is possible. You know, so I just think what I love more than anything is just helping people of color heal and cultivating that liberated life. I think my gift is in sharing really powerful techniques to find liberation and really understanding how oppression affects your relationship with yourself and your body and how you can actually harness the body's wisdom to reclaim what really matters to you, right, at your core. And I noticed that people who do healing work are so committed to just bettering the lives of others know the true meaning of suffering and and i noticed you said you wanted to alleviate suffering would you say that you have any specific life experiences that introduced you to suffering or made you just a more compassionate person and led you to this journey ah so many things i think i love to start with just my family and my background so my Family came to the U.S. through the Vietnam War. And so in some way, with that kind of legacy of trauma and oppression, it's no surprise that it really gave me a lot of commitment and urgency around suffering from a really young age and how to heal suffering in the world. So before I did the work that I do now, I the world I kind of fell into was social change, human rights, the humanitarian world. I was doing 
humanitarian work in D.C. where I went to school. I worked with survivors at a rape crisis center, moved back to L.A. and worked in homelessness and poverty. So I think through the activism work, there was some and I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast who can relate to this. A lot of burnout and ungrounding, right, that came from carrying out this kind of wounded healer archetype, I like to call it, right? Yes. In which I was helping other people with their trauma, but neglecting the inner work that I needed to heal. And so I'm a survivor of many things. I don't look like what I've been through. I think most people don't, right? Just like starting at 12, I would experience these anxiety attacks and panic attacks and these like emotional catharsis experiences would come out because my, my capacity to hold them, it just it just wasn't there. And it would just come out like my ability and lack of tools to deal with them. And I remember even thinking at a young age, like, whoa, this is going to be a difficult life, you know, and it was just a very different embodiment for me and it didn't feel good. And so like when I think about how I felt in my body, it sucked and it just wasn't how I wanted to live. And it was something that I kept choosing over and over for myself because I didn't know any other way out. And so I think that when I reached a point of realizing there is suffering here that I can no longer ignore, I didn't know how to get started, but I knew I needed help. And so I saw that there was an ad. It was in this magazine or something for a week-long meditation retreat. And I was just like, I got in my car, smoking cigarettes by the pack. And I like drove to this meditation center in Yucca Valley near um, Joshua (laughs) Tree. And I like went to the front desk of this retreat center. And I just like collapsed onto the fucking, you know, front desk. And I was just like, I need help, you know. (laughs) Take me now, now, you know. And and so that's kind of how I fell into it, just out of sheer desperation. And so I think it was really through learning these practices of meditation and these practices of mindfulness that really, I would say, saved my life because they really allowed me to find tools to move like through the eye of the storm. Oh, man, I feel like you dropped so many things that are going to be very relatable, not only to me, but people listening, uh, especially about number one, having that like breakthrough moment where you kind of just cannot exist in the way you were existing prior. Like, it's just like, this is just not the, the home and space for me anymore. And also confronting things head on. Sometimes our demons aren't as big or scary as they seemed before, you know? And, and returning to those triggering points and identifying them rather than waiting for their trauma to come to them, right? And I think that's like so symbolic of even what you did going to the meditation retreat. My I goodness. know. Oh my, and you know, that's such a perfect example of how like our ability to feel into our own suffering is what gives us compassion to live with an open heart that is vulnerable. And it's that heart that breaks open and that breaking open keeps me sensitive to the struggle around me, including myself. So when someone like rolls up to me and lashes out at me or curses me out for something, I can say, you know what? You're struggling. Like, because I've been there, I've been that person. You know, you're coming from your own pain. You're doing the best that you can. And this act of hatred or this like moment is the best that you know how to do. Because it's not just so simple. We don't 
exist in binaries, right? We all function as both the person who dropped the ball and the person who got the ball dropped on, right? We both function as perpetrators and as victims as as well. So I have definitely been the one who has, out of my woundedness, come out and hurt other people. Not intentionally, maybe, but I've hurt. And I've reacted to that hurt in the the best way that I knew how to do. And, and maybe it's been harmful to others. And that's the openness, right? And the vulnerability that I'm trying to cultivate here, right? You know, it's like this person wasn't born a white supremacist. They, they had causes and conditions that impacted and influenced them to show up in the way that they're showing up. And maybe those causes and conditions were different than mine. Maybe I had what I needed to be loving and to be connected and empathetic and grounded, but maybe other people didn't. And I'm not going to blame you for not having that, but I'm certainly not going to enable you. Oh yeah, that's a holds great you point accountable too. at the same time, right? That's also compassion. Yes. <laughs> it is. A lot of people are so terrified of confrontation in this day and age. It's for different reasons, one or the other, but sometimes it's fear of impact, right? What I've even expressed to my own family that's made our relationship so much stronger. Like my mom joked with me literally yesterday, like she said, one thing I love about you is you will tell me about myself or like tell me what's going on or how you're feeling like right right then and there. And that's something I had to work on. And she said that my, her and my grandfather were laughing about it. Like, I bet Bria's told you something too. <laughs> and he said, oh yeah, but in a nice way. And I noticed that people that care deeply about you or people that are committed to growth, after they get past that ego moment, right? That defensive moment, because no one wants to feel like they're a bad person, quote unquote, even though I feel like it's hard to even have such a thing because even at the root of all quote unquote bad people, there's usually trauma there as well. So it's just like, nobody wants to feel like they're harming or hurtful to others. But in that same regard, once they get past that ego point and commit to wanting to help and heal other people or or even just grow within themselves, people that love and care about you, that's a common factor I noticed, will take heed to your feedback, even if they don't identify fully with it, will seek understanding, right? I'm honestly so happy to hear that you have that in your life, like the sense of compassion and like people who are willing to be honest with you and you with them because... I'll be honest, like right now, just with so much going on in the world, I'm just very, very raw and like wide open and just, it's just intense. And so I really rely on the people in my life to be mirrors for me and be like, hey, you've been a little mean lately. Like what's going on? You know, <laughs> in yeah, like a but loving that's way. Helpful. Yes. That's so mm -hmm. helpful because one of the most dangerous things in my life has been when people are passive and and let things build and i used to be that person i'm a recovering people pleaser literally i didn't realize until like doing my own digging and research that people pleasing is a trauma response in efforts to seek control often from neglected children so i was like oop read me like a book like i literally <laughs> but i i think even it's ironic that you were saying that you know you can't be this self-aware all the time yet what you just said was so self-aware like i haven't been at the top of my game i haven't been my best that that is such a rare thing to hear from people 
because literally I think the climate of the world everybody wants you to like be perfect and and put together during this time and I saw on your Instagram this post where you said we need a grief strike where we take some time away from certain responsibilities we have and like the reins are loosened a bit with some of our our life's things like if something's a little bit late and that really stuck out to me because of what you just said like trying to convince yourself every morning that all right I'm at the top of my game I'm gonna work out and everything and then it it can result in a cycle at least for me during this pandemic of like self-blame or feeling inadequacy like these are things I used to be able to do why can't I do this like I mean do you have any like thoughts on that I think the idea sort of came to me when I was just noticing that I was sort of gaslighting myself for just not being able to function and for just like having such a broken heart and the fatigue and the trauma like we're still in a pandemic as as of this recording right we'll st- we're still in climate insecurity and emergency and we're still in the grips of racism like all of that is still swirling right and so to see you know people sending me emails asking things of me without even prefacing like hey are you okay like how are you doing you know to me like the fact that people are still continuing on with business as usual to me is like delusional you know (laughs) right and I, I started noticing the more I was really open and honest with people around like hey I'm really brokenhearted this week like I'm really just tending to myself this week the more I started to hear other people saying like thank you so much for naming that it gives me permission to do the same I started realizing like Okay, what if we just all agreed to stop? What if we all just as a country, as the world agreed to like five days of mourning and grieving, right? The pace at which we are experiencing these losses is too much for for the human nervous system, you know? And for me, grieving is, it's overwhelming. And, And so, you know, grieving for me is another way of saying honoring. How can we properly honor the dead and give these lives the dignity they deserve if we're constantly in the state of producing. And so it's like when we live in a system that is designed to harm or destroy us, when we stop and take care of ourselves, we're actually disrupting that system. We're frustrating that system. And so that was kind of my call to action of like, if and where you can, and I understand that it's this affects people of different classes differently, right? Some people can't take those few days off because we still haven't canceled rent, but if and where you can to take a stand and explain to your coworkers and to your people, hey, I'm taking a day off to grieve. And after I posted that, there were some nonprofits and orgs that reposted saying, we're we're shutting our doors tomorrow to really honor Mm -hmm. everything that everyone is going through, you know? Yeah. And I think people who do any type of healing work or who are very empathetic or empathic, they literally have a, a endless thirst for understanding. Sometimes these these videos and news articles, right? I knew like in theory, like, oh, these things could be traumatizing to me. Like I know in the moment they are, but I even researched and saw that the effects of watching one maybe police brutality video or news story regarding something so close to your identity can actually linger for up to three weeks after watching it in your nervous system and in your body. That made so much sense because I noticed when you see something happening to somebody, you, your brain subconsciously connects 
connects your own trauma to their experience. And I didn't realize I was sewing those neural pathways at the time when I'm watching some of these things. So I literally started posting like, hey, if you're in a community, basically black, indigenous people of color, any of these communities, like make sure that if you take some time away, do not criticize each other for not speaking in certain times or not being on 24 seven as an activist because some of us aren't activists, right? Some, for example, I have a friend who's a comedian and she's like, I'm not an activist, right? But her tagline is like medicinal laughter. So through producing joy, she is doing something radical within the community. And so just showing up where you are and what you can do even if it has nothing to do with directly speaking on a topic, but maybe it is producing joy or something that's just helpful to people during this time. Because we can't Mm. look at these stories 24-7. It's just not Mm. healthy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. This is like one of my favorite things to talk about because I think there's Mm -hmm. some like myth busting that needs to happen of what it means to show up, right? And I really like to think of it as an ecosystem. There was a time in my life where showing up for me meant being out in the streets, like on the front lines of social change. And then it shifted into supporting people and doing the inner work, healing, processing the trauma. And so I can't be on the front lines and potentially get arrested because the next morning I have two clients at 10 a.m. who who depend on me. I need to be a reliable source of stability for them so that they can process the video they watched that morning. So that means that showing up for me looks like resting, tending to the pain and the suffering of the world, making sure I have a grounded nervous system. Because it's like, if, if you're drowning and I go and drown with you, I'm not helping you, right? Like, and so I have to be rooted. I can't go in there with you. And so, you know, with that has to come an acceptance that some people may look at me and be like, she's not showing up. She's not doing the work. She's not an activist, right? But like, no one knows what's going on behind the scenes, Brie. No one knows, right? That is so powerful. Like, Like, I feel like that breath of fresh air moment where it's like that exhale because, you know, it... Admitting that you're not doing okay is not a point of weakness. It's a point of your humanity, right? With what's going on, I'd be kind of scared if you were just excellent right now. But vulnerability breeds, like honesty breeds honesty and vulnerability breeds vulnerability in others. Yeah, and and what that does is it creates an opportunity for intimacy, right? Someone asks me how I'm doing and I'm like, you know what? I've had better days. Thank you for asking. Ooh, ooh, that that is you know, real. Right? And what yes. that does is it creates an, an invitation and an opportunity for connection because maybe that other person is like, you know what? I've been having a rough day too. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now there's a moment of connection. Yes. Right? But had yes. I just continued with like, oh, I'm good. That disconnection that you mentioned would have happened. He's like, oh, I've had a terrible day so she probably doesn't want to hear about my terrible day so I'm gonna pretend like I'm doing great too mm. and we're all just masked you know yeah oh literally masked and masked like yeah. literally. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's the thing so we funny. want the most right this connection right <laughs> one of the biggest burdens of people pleasing is we're constantly thinking for other people for them 
Meaning I was constantly making assumptions about how someone would respond to me, what someone Mm. thinks about me. Like this brain and this consciousness is already enough to deal with, right? So on (laughs) top of that, I was like, oh, if I ask for help, maybe she'll think I'm too much or maybe he'll run away from me. We make assumptions for other people on their behalf. And this happens a lot with my clients where they're afraid to reach out because they think they're going to burden me. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, without people to love, without people to care for, without relationships and opportunities to share my love, I cannot fulfill my purpose. Like, please understand the joy and the gift it would bring me to be able to show up for you. I feel like I identify with you so much because I feel so full after conversations, even like the one we're having now where it's just candid and open and I just I I'm sorry y'all like I thrive off of people saying like you saved my life or you helped th- this thing you said stuck with me I carried that with me and that was the thing that ultimately over time grew into something in me that literally gave me the the strength to choose me when we try to heal without a community when we try to heal without beloveds in our life What ends up happening is when you go into the underground and we start opening up these caverns, it can start to feel really overwhelming and it can start to feel kind of scary. And the ways we've been oppressed is it can feel like it's just us, like nobody in the world understands this pain and like no one gets me and just like I'm the only one who's experiencing this pain. And when you actually zoom out, there are 7 billion people on this planet. How many people on this planet do you think are feeling lonely right now? Who wish that they had someone to talk to, right? Who's felt like they're not enough. That for me is like my practice whenever I feel like this sort of lone wolf syndrome. I think maybe a lot of like women of color, you know, I was like the eldest daughter, you know, like child of immigrants. It's like, you know, this strong woman archetype. Like my tendency is to like, I got this, I got this, I got this. And so whenever I start to sense that, I have to literally send a signal to my heart to open up and start to reach out, you know, because if not, I'm just going to sit here and think that I'm the only one who's experiencing heartbreak. I'm the only one who's experiencing loneliness right now, you know? Oh my gosh. (laughs) That bird's eye view of just like, wow, how many people would want to connect with me right now and like talk about this, you know? Yeah. And even like for for people listening who may perhaps be like really shy or introverted, mm-hmm. one thing I used to use as an escape and a way to reconnect and things were books, right? Sometimes I wanted to emphasize too, the connection doesn't always have to be human. If let's say you're not ready yet or you're, or again, you're shy and you're working your way up to being able to talk to somebody. Sometimes it's art, sometimes it's poetry, it's journaling. It's There's so many ways to reconnect with even yourself and interact with mediums and things like that on paper like mediums of expression actually bring you understanding and help you process. One thing that I'm always encouraging people to ask is like, what is required for your healing? Like what is required for your liberation? What is required for you to move forward from this place of pain or suffering? But it takes that self-awareness to know what it is that you need in the first place, you know? 
Exactly. Since we are talking about identity and how everyone has either individual needs, like even today's episode is like the model minority myth. Do you feel like there has been any misconceptions made about you based on perhaps your visual identity or any other identities you associate with? Has there been any assumptions made? How has that impacted you during especially like the pandemic? I think in this sort of space and industry that I'm in, wellness, healing, spirituality, there's a lot of misconceptions around practices that come from Asian people or Asian like communities or Asian countries or cultures. I think it often exists within a context of Orientalism and white supremacy within the U.S. that tends to cast Asians as more passive or more peaceful. There's all kinds of weird stereotypes about it. And when you get past the superficial casting of it, in a Western context, very serious Buddhists, very serious meditators in the countries that I come from are like working very diligently to like undo human suffering. Like if, if you aren't familiar with a lot of the origins of mindfulness, like look up Tibet or like Burma or Vietnam or Thailand, right? Mindfulness was not created on some beach by a blonde woman <laughs> in Santa Monica. Right, no. They were really forged in the fires of intense suffering and intense yes. violence. And so I think a lot of the mm-hmm. times people think that to engage in mindfulness or meditation or spiritual practices, I have to transcend anger or transcend my sassiness or something. And it's like, no, these are really important tools on our spiritual path, right? I- I'm not around these kind of spaces anymore, but certainly in the beginning of my journey as a coach and as a spiritual teacher... People were really taken aback when I would raise my hand and be like, hey, like, where are the people of color in this room? Like bringing up issues of oppression, intersectionality into wellness spaces, just people expecting that I'm going to be a wallflower, you know. It comes from so many lenses like, oh, there's the superiority lens where it's like, you should be happy you're invited. Simmer down like that tokenism moment where it's like, you're the one who made it, especially when people are appropriating or or doing certain practices that have an origin and they're not educated on the origin and or trying to silence the voices of people who like this is their not only culture, but their upbringing and like and something very near and dear to be kind of like put off by by them speaking is a little bit like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, I know, right? Because people cast me as passive and peaceful, I, I shift myself to not be that. And that's not always self-honoring. Like sometimes, do I really have something to say right now? Do I really need to speak up? Or am I just perfectly comfortable being the silent, beautiful force that sits in a room, you know? And if someone looks at that and says, oh, it's because she's passive and a peaceful Asian woman, then that's on them. The model minority myth is exactly that. It's a myth. You know, it isn't true. It's something that has been intentionally created by a white journalist in the 1960s who was praising Japanese Americans and saying, look at these hardworking, quiet, passive people who come to the U.S. and they don't cause any trouble. And of course, the subtext of that was unlike the way that Black Americans are currently causing trouble for the United States by demanding civil rights and demanding reparations. So we have to be very careful about not being used 
as a, as tools a tool, of... right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That is so, so true. You even brought up a really good point about media representation and how deeply that impacts how communities relate to one another. Because literally, I think that it's been used to divide and conquer in a way in so many of our communities over a historical period of time. A lot of our communities have a lot of similar issues regarding crime, regarding like poverty versus wealth and and these different class systems and things and different identities exist throughout the entirety of the community. And one thing that the model minority myth enforces is erasure of the intersectional identities within the Asian community. That probably deeply impacts a lot of people's mental health when they are assumed to be a certain way. Those are the consequences of buying into this myth. It perpetuates anti-Blackness and that it gives Asian Americans the illusion of social progress. You know, like a lot of these cultural stereotypes that are primarily of light-skinned Asian people, right? Like noticing how they contrast very neatly with stereotypes that are levied against other racial groups. And actually, you know, for those who are interested, like Peterson, I think was the name of the white journalist who wrote that article in the 1960s. He goes as far as to call black and brown folks the problem minorities. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So you juxtapose these common stereotypes that are ascribed to Asian and black communities. It's like light-skinned Asians as law-abiding, hardworking, docile, submissive, obedient, disciplined, whereas black and brown folks are cast as criminal, unmotivated, aggressive, and and therefore justified being criminalized and surveyed for centuries. Like when we can see what the machine is doing, we can become empowered to really like coalition build and, and fight against it, you know? And I'm always encouraging other Asian Americans to speak up and to take a stand against these tropes that not only implies that these stereotypes can be overcome as long as you have, you know, gumption right like right but again it also ends up ignoring a lot of the institutional power structures um that create and maintain a lot of these inequities in the first place you know like poverty lack of education and jobs right and so when we can come together and resist that wedge that divides solidarity among people of color We can really disrupt these myths and also reclaim all of our humanities. Something that I feel like I relate deeply to as a Black woman is the consequences that you face when you are no longer palatable to white America. That is something I've been going through, especially after the 2020 summer. It was impossible for me not to advocate and speak up. My first experience with police brutality was at age 12. And literally, I described it as for a lot of our communities, like we've had these boogeymen and we live in a haunted house that is America. And we have all these ghosts and demons of all the the, the crimes against humanity that even the country, quote unquote, was built on that have just been lingering, right? Our ancestral ties to the land that have been lingering. And 
they're not being addressed and they're being ignored. So I said a lot of white Americans have been like the husband you see in a scary movie where they're kind of like gaslighting and like everything's fine. You're just you're just paranoid about this new house we're moving into. There's nothing here. And lo and behold, towards the end of the movie, they finally start seeing everything and they're like, oh, crap, let's get our bags, kids. You know, 2020 has been this breakthrough and it's like the fourth wall in film where you actually get to see everything happening. It's bittersweet of like how it's had to happen. But it's refreshing now for people that have in the past maybe downplayed something I said or weren't open to it. Now it's so glaringly obvious and they're like they have to confront the ghosts of a system mm. that oh. was created. Wow. I'm just so grateful to be able to like witness you and and hear your share and if folks who are listening to this aren't aware of the beautiful history of solidarity and coalition building between black and asian people that's some homework for everybody today like yuri kochiyama like a japanese american activist and member of the black panther party there's like a very famous photo of her cradling the head of Malcolm X when he was assassinated in New York City, right? And then like in our present day, Asian American leaders who are fighting for social justice and against anti-Black racism and like not to discount the racism that exists in Asian American communities, anti-Blackness. But that's a really important discussion that needs to be had. It's unfortunate that it had to take this amount of tragedy for, for all of us to see oh, it's not black people against Asian people or vice versa. It's like us against white supremacy, right? Like a yes. common Pre narrative, yes. right? <laughs> Malcolm X, he talks about like, have you been hoodwinked into thinking that it's a war against us when it's really with white supremacy, you know? And just really noticing the ways in which we are tempted to be like, well, why isn't this community showing up for us? And why isn't that community showing up for us? Like white supremacy is not, a problem that people of color should be fixing. That is work for white Thank people. Thank you. Right? Thank you. <laughs> Imagine somebody comes in your house and takes a vase and they smack that shit off the counter and just like, ah, like, you know what I mean? And they, and they wreck everything. And they look at you like, why aren't you fixing it? That's kind of how it feels sometimes when people are asking me, like, I, don't get me wrong, I love explaining and educating. But I dislike entitlement to that. It's like the last hundred black women that were murdered by police or unjustly uh, killed have had no justice in the court system at all. Yet black women started Black Lives Matter. But even to like go through that, it's just like, again, one thing that both of our communities deal with significantly is erasure. I've even had to educate people about a uh, Buddha in my uh, home right now that was gifted by my best friend from her family in Sri Lanka. I had it shown in video content and people were like being kind of judgmental on things. And I'm like, hey, do you guys know the history of Buddhism and how like even like Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King sat down to discuss the civil rights movement and he even got exiled from his home country in these fights for justice. I, I love that you brought up the example of Thich Nhat Hanh and Dr. King because who did Dr. King learn about nonviolence from? Exactly. A, an Indian man <laughs> named Gandhi, right? Like j Just seeing the ways that the opportunities that we have right now for community building and, and trust building and surely there's so much atonement that needs to happen between our communities and for any Asian Americans who are listening to this, please reject any form of anti-Blackness and policing as a response 
to the anti-Asian violence. Like, cops are the ones who killed Angelo Quinto, that Filipino veteran in his home. Cops are the ones who murdered Christian Hall, a Chinese-American boy who was having a mental health crisis. Like, why do we think cops would keep us safe if they're also killing us? Increasing of policing in our communities has not and will not keep us safe. We need affordable housing. We need mental health resources. The reason why there's hate crimes committed by Black folks onto Asian American folks is because we're relegated into these low-income communities and forced to fight for resources. It's systemic violence that breeds interpersonal violence. I can't like not say that here, you know, because it's so important that we're using this opportunity right now to advance a lot of the beautiful abolition work that has been started by Black leadership. Thank you. Thank you so much for that message. Like that means the world to just even me to hear And it's something that I've been doing more often. Instead of sharing traumatic videos, some things that I've been doing is sharing moments of unification that disrupt the system and the ideal. There were gangs in LA who tied their flags together in unity and held it up at a protest, right? And then seeing indigenous Americans and how they have partnered with black people historically it's important to amplify moments where the the Black community and the Asian American community are working together. Love is so powerful, you know, and we see enough hatred and trauma and things and we have enough reasons to finger point and compare. But when you see those moments of helping, there's just so much power that comes from having a common goal and a common understanding, like you said, of the machine at work. Thank you for that remembrance. And I think it just comes back to healing happens in the relational field. If like you share a post or like you show up at a protest, but it's like, if you don't treat the black people in your life well, like wh- what's the point? It's like there, there has to be a bridging that's happening with the change we're creating externally and the change that's happening interpersonally. Like they have to really go together so many Asian Americans who are just like black people aren't showing up it's like are you in relationship with black people maybe the reason why black people aren't showing up for you is because you aren't in relationship when you have people in your life who you love it just becomes impossible to not want them to be free start with your own inner circle like where does anti-blackness live in your heart get really really honest about it and then like let it ripple out into the policy changes into what needs to happen for it to trickle up and out so that we can all be free, you know? I agree so much. Oh my gosh. So one thing I've been curious about too, is there anything that you personally have had to unlearn along your journey of self-actualization and some of the things that may have been taught to you at a young age that you decided, all right, this no longer fulfills or suits me? Mm. It's so strange because this doesn't feel related. But when you asked the question, this is the first thing that came up. So (laughs) I grew up in in a Catholic and a Buddhist family. My father's side is really Catholic, like traditional Catholic space. But I went to a Baptist Christian school. Um, For those who may not be familiar with like the church, either Christian or Catholic, the Catholic church is very internal. Like nobody was really feeling any feelings. You know, it's like the opposite of going to maybe a a gospel church in the South where there's like music and ecstasy and bliss. Like the Catholic church was just like (laughs) this old white man standing up the front talking to people. And I, I just, 
I just remember thinking like, oh, this is so dry. Like, could we dance a little maybe? But through that time, like growing up in this Baptist school and like Catholic environment, I was like repeatedly told I was a sinner. Just like banged over the head at all the church groups. You're a sinner. Homosexuality is bad. Like you're bad. Don't wear that. Your shorts are too short. You look like a whore. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm 12 years old, you know? That was just, like, so confusing for a young woman. And I know I'm not the only one. So many of us are just, like, told you're bad. And the moment that your sexuality starts to blossom, it's like your power. You're coming into your power. <laughs> yes. And it's like, no, you, you you don't get that power. So put, put it away. Like, be skinny. <laughs> don't talk too much. Look normal. Act normal. Because really what's happening is this fountain of energy and gorgeous beauty. And like, there's so much power. If you're ever seeing a young woman, and I don't mean this in a creepy way, but a young girl blossoming, it's like, it's like watching a, a rainbow form in the sky. You know, there's something so beautiful about seeing a woman entering her power. So I would say it was just this weird thing of all of a sudden... I was finding my voice and my sexuality and people are like, cover your boobs and strap them down and put on tight pants and keep it all together and make it stop. So I think like owning my sexuality and my sexual power has been really connected to unlearning a lot of the stereotypes as an Asian American woman of being like sweet and docile and submissive, you know, <laughs> right? This like duality, yes. you know, you know, we've been talking so much about Buddhism and everything, but it's like, I love to wear the lingerie and the eight inch heels. And I'm also extremely comfortable being covered head to toe. You know, I love these two yes. types of myself, like the saint and the brazen woman. So mm. There's power in both. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that you're harnessing both, I'm just like, literally, you're now officially a superhero. <laughs> that goes to the point of self-liberation, right? So what, what would you say from the day that you went and you fell onto that counter at the, the meditation retreat till now? Because I know there are people that are probably so inspired and want to know, like, what could this journey look like for somebody, right? What are some of the things that impacted your mental health or your physical health and well-being since, you know, choosing yourself and and going on this journey? I think the biggest transformations that I've seen, and there have been so many, but how I've been able to open my heart. And I know that's hard for some people to believe, but I, I was really very angry and sad and scared and was just moving through severe depression. And, you know, when I got to that place, I needed to develop a different relationship to what was happening inside of me. I had this beautiful experience the other day. Yesterday, actually, I was in Target and, you know, it was in the chip aisle. This like young white guy came up to me and he goes, what should I pick? Usually I shut down because my fight or flight is just like, I'm in danger, I'm in danger, he's gonna try to do something to me because as a survivor, that's just something that became my story, you know? And I think through this work of like compassion and opening my heart and, and just practicing returning to my true nature as love, I think I've been able to develop this intuition of, okay, when am I actually in danger? And when am I projecting 
And that moment that he came up to me, I like checked in with my intuition and intuition was just like, you know, it's, it's cool. It's like, it's okay. You know, I was like, so I responded. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, Cheetos or Doritos. And the more that I started talking to him, the more I realized he's genuinely just confused about what chips to get. There's no like ulterior motive. I think he was probably high, honestly. (laughs) He He was just like, just, and it just became the most endearing moment I was just like giggling and laughing and just we were just being silly and I walked away and I was like okay is he gonna do something he's gonna try to get my number no he just said goodbye and that was it had I continued to be in that space of like I'm not safe I'm not safe I'm not safe everyone's out to get me which there's no judgment if you're in that place I think that's the biggest transformations I've been able to see is like despite being the subject of violence from white supremacists. Like I'm a hate crime survivor myself. I'm a sexual violence survivor. Just knowing at the end of the day that healing for me does not look like being terrified of men, being terrified of white people, right? Like I just, I just knew for myself, I didn't want to live in the world from that place. And just for me, that's probably the biggest transformation I've seen, you know, the ability to reclaim my open heart, not for white people, not for men, but for myself to reclaim my true nature as one of love, you know? So I hope that answers your question. I'm very much in the middle of entering the threshold out of that fear state. (laughs) It's a lifelong process. And people think that, I think that's a common misconception. People think that once you start Mm. getting into healing work, that you're suddenly this toxically positive being that's just, you know? And I'm like, no, No. it's it's a constant unlearning and relearning. Even things that you might've learned to heal years ago might no longer serve you. And it's a constant practice, right? It's a practice. Speaking of practice, can you tell our viewers a little bit more about Get Free and some of the cool things that you offer for people listening might be interested? Yes, I would love to connect with all of you. I have like this guided meditation that I wanted to share with everybody. It's like a download for a meditation for self-compassion. In Buddhism, it's called like a loving kindness practice. And I think when we're doing this deep transformational work and building businesses and writing books or taking risks and huge leaps of faith and leaving our job or that relationship, a lot of painful memories and emotions can come up. And it brings them to the surface so that we can deal with them, right? But without support, it can be somewhat destabilizing. And so for me, breathwork meditation is a really powerful but gentle way to assist you in just coming home to yourself. I would love to share that with everyone, but um, I'm really excited about this year, my private mentorship, just so many individuals coming together, just fucking ready to up level and to face their shit and grow and become leaders. So, so many of the people in my group programs and mentorship have become leaders and starting businesses and are thriving. And that just makes me the happiest. Like, Literally, when our people are thriving and when they're killing it and they're busting through their limiting beliefs, it makes me so happy to see you shining. We have different options for people who are curious. So I do one-on-one mentorships for people who want to go deep, but I also will hopefully be traveling this year, doing some retreats and bringing all of this stuff offline to my community and just continuing to do my best to be a leader and bringing everything we talked about today in the context of helping others get free. And if you want to stay connected, my Instagram is, you can find me online at Lotus in a Sea of Fire. 
and on my website at www.getfreewithcharlotte.com. So please be in community with me. I would love to um, get to know you all more. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Charlotte. It has been just so amazing having you on. So I usually, because the show is called Count to 10, we usually do 10 seconds at the end to just regroup and restabilize. So uh, would you join me in our end of episode ritual? Yes, please. All right, awesome. (laughs) I love this. All right, everybody. So everyone listening, no matter where you are, what you're doing, just take a moment. Of course, if you're driving, you might not be able to like close your eyes per se, but whatever you can do to just uh, take a moment and just focus on your breathing and where you are at this very moment. So we're going to take 10 moments of just deep breathing and a little bit of quiet time. All right. So breathe in. And out. Breathe in. And out. Breathe in. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And make sure that you just have a wonderful rest of your day. I always say, go kill shit, go fuck it up, go do what you do best, and just make your surroundings the most blissful that you can today. And I love you all. Again, make sure to follow Charlotte. Her work's just so amazing. And thank you for listening, y'all. Catch you in the next episode.